Brothers and sisters, we are looking forward to our second class. Our speaker this morning is Brother Roger Lewis. The theme for Brother Roger's classes this week is, Who Was the Nameless Man of God? Today's class is entitled, And They Told It in the City. Brother Roger. Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, and good morning, my dear brothers and sisters. So, they came and they told it in the city. You might remember that we left our last study in the first of Kings chapter 13 with the man of God having now returned to Bethel and there in the house of the old prophet. He says in verse 19, the record says in verse 19 that he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. And no doubt they didn't just eat and drink. They were probably engaged in deep conversation. And whilst they discussed matters together at Bethel, that discussion may have been deep and earnest. But the fact was, they shouldn't have been eating together at all. One man had lied. The other man had disobeyed. This meal and this meeting should not have taken place. And so the record says in verse 20, that it came to pass as they sat the table. And clearly what we're being told is in the very act, in the very moment of that meal, of that meeting, things were about to unfold. And I think that neither of these people had any idea of the drama that was about to befall them both in the providence of God. I don't think they had any idea, neither the man of God nor the old prophet, what was to come to pass and just how swiftly it was to occur. Now, there's something interesting about verse 20. It says it came to pass as they sat at the table. You might not think that that's a significant comment, but I think it is. We're told in the first of Samuel chapter 20, verse 29 and 34, that Saul had a table. And if you come to the second of Samuel chapter 9, you'll remember this occasion uh, earlier in the life of David, where the record says, 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 7, David said unto him, that's to the son of Jonathan, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. By the way, I think I can hear an echo there going forwards into the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Some that sat at meat at the table with the Lord. But you see, what's interesting is that this is the table of David. We're told in the... Well, come and look at the first of Kings, chapter 4, verse 27. The first of Kings, chapter 4, verse 27 says that Solomon likewise had a table. It says in, in that chapter, these officers, those officers provided victual for King Solomon and for all that came unto King Solomon's table. Every man in his month, they lacked nothing. Perhaps one last reference in the book of Nehemiah, 
And in, uh, in, in Nehemiah chapter 5, we're told this concerning the provisions that Nehemiah made. It says in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 17, Moreover, there were at my table an hundred and fifty of the Jews and rulers, beside those that came unto us from among the nations that were round about. And when you look at the subject of tables, brothers and sisters, in the Bible record, you'll find that tables almost invariably are associated with royalty alone. So Saul had one, David had one, Solomon had one, Jezebel, Jezebel had one, Nehemiah as the governor had one. But this table belongs to the old prophet of Bethel. And I think there's a clue here, an indication that perhaps he was a man of wealth. And not just that, but similarly, asses were an indication of wealth. If you come back to Judges chapter 10, we're told this, because you remember the old prophet rode upon an ass. But in the book of Judges in chapter 10, you remember that one of the judges, famous for the number of sons he had, it's recorded of him in, in Judges chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, and after him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and judged Israel twenty and two years, and he had thirty sons that rode on thirty ass colts. And I think the implication behind that, the fact that they rode on asses, was an indication of the elevated status of that family. He's got thirty sons, all rode on thirty asses, says the divine record. These were important men. And wasn't that true also, if we come to the first of Kings chapter 1, that on the occasion of the anointing of Solomon under rather dramatic circumstances, you might remember that David himself says in the first of Kings chapter 1 and verse 33, it says, The king said unto them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and cause Solomon my son to ride upon mine own mule, David's own ass, brothers and sisters, the king's ass, caused Solomon to ride upon that animal as a mark of who he was and the authority that would be vested in this one who was about to be anointed as king in place of David his father. And lastly, and we don't need to turn it up, but you'll remember a famous reference in a prophet that says, Zechariah 9 verse 9, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just and having salvation, lowly, but riding upon an ass, says Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. Asses were an indication of status. And the old prophet doesn't just have a house, he doesn't just have a table, he has an ass. And one wonders therefore that when the record says, back in the first of Kings 13 and verse 20, that he had gone back and, and come to this man's house, whether perhaps the status of the old prophet might have affected the decision of the man of God. Was this respect of persons, brothers and sisters, a wealthy man, and therefore one whose influence ought to be respected because of his status. Well, we don't know, brothers and sisters, but the record does tell us those details as if perhaps for some reason we ought to know. And the record says there in verse 20, it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of Yahweh came unto the prophet that brought him back. So the first thing we notice is that the word of God came during the very meal they were eating together right there in the house. And it didn't come to the man of God this time. The word of God didn't come to the man of God. It came to the prophet who brought him back. So the strange paradox of verse 20 is that the instrument of his sin, the man of God's sin, 
now becomes the instrument for the judgment of his sin. It was the old prophet that asked him to come back in the first place. Now it's the old prophet that will tell him off for coming back. How strange is this story, brothers and sisters, that this man becomes the instrument of condemnation. Verse 21 says, And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah. Ah, you see that word cry? That's the same word from verse 2. When it says the man of God first came out of Judah into Bethel, it says he cried against the altar. He cried, karah, to call aloud. But now that word is used back to him in verse 21. So just as the man of God has cried judgment against Jeroboam, so now the man of God has judgment cried against him in a strange reversal of circumstances. Verse 21 says that what the old prophet cried unto the man of God that came from Judah was, Thus saith Yahweh, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of Yahweh and hast not kept the commandment which Yahweh thy God commanded thee. Now, you see, he disobeyed the mouth of God. The ground of his judgment lay in the fact that his charge had been given to him directly from God. From the mouth of God you had commission, is this judgment. From the voice of God you were given a responsibility. And you have not listened to that mouth. You see, that direct, in, that direct instruction from God could never, should never have been revoked or superseded by the words of any man, including the old prophet, notwithstanding his status. And not only had he disobeyed the mouth of Yahweh, come directly to him. But you see what verse 21 goes on to say, Thou hast not kept the commandment which Yahweh thy God commanded thee. Now there, brothers and sisters, is the nub of the matter. Because, because you see, that spirit of not keeping the divine commandment was the very sin of Jeroboam himself. Now come and have a look at it. In chapter 14, just the next chapter, do you see what it says? Verses 8 and 9. Go tell Jeroboam, verse 7, that, that God rent, verse 8, rent the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it thee. And yet, thou hast not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, who followed me with all his heart, to do only that which was right in mine eyes. But thou... Thou hast done evil above all that were gone before thee. Thou hast gone and made the other gods and molten images. So you see, the very ground for the condemnation of Jeroboam himself was that he didn't keep the commandment of God, like David. In fact, if you come to the second of Kings, the second of Kings chapter 17, which is the chapter that records the final overthrow of the nation, we looked at it earlier on, you remember, when the children of Israel were cast off and sent into Assyria. See what it says in the second of Kings 17 about that moment in their history. Verse 14, perhaps, for connection. Second Kings 17. Notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks like to the neck of their fathers that did not believe in Yahweh their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom Yahweh had charged them that they should not do like them. And, and here's the words, they left all the commandments of Yahweh their God 
and made them molten images, even two calves. Who did that, brothers and sisters? Who made molten images, even two calves? Why, that's Jeroboam. What did he do? Verse 16, he left all the commandments of Yahweh his God. And now the old prophet in the first of Kings chapter 13 and verse 21 says to the man of God, thou hast not kept the commandment which Yahweh thy God commanded thee. Now you see the significance of this, brothers and sisters. Because the very fact was that the man of God had committed the same sin as Jeroboam. And I think that that's crucial to understand in the context of the severity of God's judgment that would now come upon the man of God. You see, it was important that even Jeroboam witness that God would not tolerate departure from his commandments. If the man of God could, could not keep God's commandments but be spared, then why would Jeroboam need to change? What force would there be to the man of God's words to come to Jeroboam and say, you have not kept the commandment of God if he himself had broken Yahweh's commandments and there was no consequence upon the man of God as a result. Then there was no power in his message and no need for Jeroboam to change, you see. There was something at stake here, wasn't there, brothers and sisters, in terms of how this whole matter worked out. And, you know, I think there's a lesson here. It's a fundamental lesson. It's a lesson we all know, but a lesson sometimes that we forget and it's all part of God's dealings with men and women down through time. Well, it's about the importance of obedience. Because you see, here in the first of Kings, in chapter 13, we're being told that the man of God was given a specific charge, and yet the one thing he failed to do was to render obedience to the mouth of God. Despite the unequivocal clarity of, of its demand upon him. And that's been God's requirement down through time, you see, importance. Always been part of God's operating principles with mankind, if they are to receive the blessing of God. Remember this example? In Genesis chapter 22, we're told that Abraham was given a final promise, confirmed by the very oath of God itself, that would bring blessing to all nations because of his obedience. In fact, this is what God says to Abraham in that place. He says, in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. It says, that was the ground of blessing for Abraham. Thou hast obeyed my voice. And that, incidentally, brothers and sisters, as well we know in Genesis chapter 22, despite the fierce provocation of being asked to offer his only begotten son, thou hast obeyed my voice. See, God delighted in that and could bless accordingly. And what of this man, by way of contrast, like the man of God? Aren't we told in the first of Samuel chapter 15 that Saul was rejected because he would not keep the divine commandment and he would not render obedience to the voice of God. This is what it says in the book of Samuel. It says, Samuel said, Hath Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, 
And so he says, Because thou hast rejected the word of Yahweh, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And it's all based on that same common principle, brothers and sisters, the voice of God that rings loudly even in our ears from off the pages of the book. Are we obedient to the voice? Then God's blessing is possible. Are we disobedient to the voice? Then God's judgment will come. And one more passage, which, again, we shan't turn up, but you'll remember it's a remarkable story. In Jeremiah chapter 35, we're told that Jeremiah brings the house of Rechab into the place near the temple and asks them to drink wine. And the house of Rechab said, no, we can't do that. They said, we will drink no wine, for Jonathan, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, don't drink wine, don't build houses, don't sow seeds, Dwell in your tents, and we've obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he has charged us. And God takes up the lesson of the story of that family, brothers and sisters, and says that they were blessed with divine approval. There shall not want a man forever before me to stand from that family, says God, because they obeyed the voice of their father. That's what I want, says God. And so here's the lesson, brothers and sisters, and I know it's a simple lesson, but sometimes, you know, we forget the critical ones as far as the truth's reality is concerned, is that if obedience is the prerequisite for divine blessing, then let us never forget that disobedience is the precursor to divine judgment. It's how God works. Don't ever let us think that his principles will change. And so coming back to the first of Kings, in chapter 13 we're told this, in that utterance of judgment that the old prophet brought forth against the man of God, for all of these reasons, we're told this in the 22nd verse, he said, you came back, thou camest back, and hast eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which Yahweh did say unto thee, Eat no bread and drink no water. Do you know, brothers and sisters, those words, eat and drink, are used seven times in this chapter. And now we come to the last of them in verse 22. Because as we've said earlier, to the Jew, to eat and drink was an act of fellowship. And the very reason for God's prohibition upon him was because he represented God himself in this matter. This was God's warning to Jeroboam, that he was out of fellowship with heaven. Why did this man come back and eat and drink and break that entire principle? It was why to ignore God. And so here's the ground of judgment that now is uttered against the man of God. At the end of verse 22 it says, Thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulchre of thy fathers. Now I think there's two different matters here implicit in that curse. Two different issues. The first relates to the possibility of the fact that the body might lie unburied. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 23, this has come back in Genesis chapter 23 verse 3 and 4, this goes a long way back in the history of the people, you see. When Abraham was going to bury Sarah his wife, the record says this in Genesis 23 verses 3 and 4. And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead 
out of my sight. And part of the spirit behind that, brothers and sisters, is that it was unthinkable that one would leave a body on the ground without actually interring it in some way. It was a matter of disgrace for a body to lie unburied. Give me a possession at least of a burying place, says Abraham, that I may do my wife the dignity of burying her in this way. If you come to the second of Kings chapter 9, you'll remember the story of the judgment upon Jezebel, and it's pertinent to a thought about that. Unburied bodies, you see. Second Kings chapter 9 verse 10 says that the man who, the young man who gives this prophecy stands up and he says in verse 10 of 2 Kings 9, he says, the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Because that was a, an astounding message to the queen of the realm. There'll be none to bury her. In other words, she will die in disgrace. And of course, when we come to the end of that same chapter, we're told this in verse 34 of the 2nd of Kings 10. And when he was come in, he did eat and drink and said, Go now, see this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Wherefore they came again and told him. And he said, This is the word of Yahweh, which he spake by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel. In other words, she was to be left unburied. It was a disgrace. It was a mark of her disgrace. An unburied body. And so when the, when the old prophet says to the man of God, Thy carcass shall not come to the sepulchre of thy fathers, one of the things that might possibly be implicit here is a body left unburied as a sign of its disgrace. But there was a second thing, wasn't there, that the old prophet said, Thy body shall not come to the sepulchre of thy fathers. Well, that also was considered to be a matter dishonorable and tragic. If you come to the second of Samuel chapter 19, you might remember again these words of old Barzillai the Gileadite, of whom it says this in the second of Samuel chapter 19, in verse 37. He says, Let thy servant, I pray thee, turn back again, that I may die in mine own city and be buried by the grave of my father and of my mother. See, that was important to him. That when he died, not just to be buried, but to be buried in the family sepulchre, at the place where his mother and father were buried, the graveyard, the grave place of his family. That, that was what was done, you see. In fact, just a couple of chapters later on, in the second of Samuel chapter 21, you might remember in verse 12 the story of what happened after the vigil of Rizpah over her sons. We're told in the second of Samuel chapter 21 and verse 12 that David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh Gilead, which had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, and he brought up, verse 13, from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his sons and the bones of these ones in this chapter that had been hung together and the bones of Saul and of Jonathan his son buried they in the country of Benjamin in Zelah in the sepulchre of Kish his father 
and they performed all that the king commanded. And this was, as it were, David's final salute of affection for his friend Jonathan, that at least his bones were taken and buried where? In the family sepulchre, in the sepulchre of his fathers. So coming back to the first of Kings and chapter 13, I think that what we're being told, brothers and sisters, when this matter of judgment is brought forth from the old prophet's, uh, from the old prophet's mouth, that thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulchre of thy fathers, what the man of God was being told is that he would face both an untimely death and an ignominious disposal. But what the old prophet didn't say, and the old prophet didn't know, nor the man of God, was what the means of death would be, and when exactly it would come about. This, as yet, was not revealed. Now, can you imagine, brothers and sisters, how the old prophet must have felt when this utterance came upon him? He was an old prophet, remember. We suggested that he's part of what was the schools of the prophets in Bethel of earlier times, and suddenly the prophetic utterance is upon him again. It might have been years and years and years since such an experience had come to this man, and suddenly he feels the Spirit of God upon him. After his faith had long since declined from his earlier zeal, how astonished he must have been that through him the voice of utterance would come. And not just astonished, brothers and sisters, he must have felt a terrible guilt that his own lying and his own deception had brought this shocking consequence upon the man of God. And if we're right in suggesting that the principal object of this man was simply to have been stimulated by scriptural conversation, then can you imagine how devastating the impact of this message must have been upon the old prophet? That he had to stand up and, and say these things. You see, he had been living a life of disobedience to the divine commandments himself. How can he pronounce judgment against the man of God and not be excruciatingly aware that he shouldn't expect any less judgment in his own life? And not just that his own life had been unacceptable, but that in this matter he'd caused somebody else to sin. And I think, brothers and sisters, that God spoke through him for the very purpose of touching the old prophet's heart. That he might be shocked by the reality of that circumstance and to realize that he also stood related to exactly that same spirit of disobedience from the commandments of God and therefore ought to suffer some sort of punishment consistent with the man of God. Oh no, he would not feel good, would he, the old prophet, in uttering this message. And I think that was designedly so in the providence of God, you see. So verse 23 says... It says, it came to pass after he'd eaten bread and after he'd drunk that he saddled for him the ass to wit for the prophet whom he'd brought back. So the meal was concluded before the man of God left, but it wasn't the same meal anymore, was it, brothers and sisters? There was a shadow hanging over the story now. And yet I think we get the impression when we read verse 23, it came to pass after he'd eaten and drunk, he saddled the ass, and it's almost as if he hops on the ass and, and off he goes. And there's an overwhelming impression that even though he's ridden away, he still has no idea of how sudden the judgment will be to come upon him. He may have thought it lay at some point in the future, but not right now, surely not today. 
I don't think he had any impression of that from the circumstances of the narrative here. Incidentally, when it says at the end of that verse, verse 23, the prophet whom he'd brought back, I think the New International Version is probably more correct when it says, when the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his ass for him. In other words, that expression at the end, the prophet whom he'd brought back, ought to be rendered as the New International Version does, um, that it is the prophet who had brought him back. Now, I'll tell you why I say that, because that word, that expression in the Hebrew, Hanabi Asur Hesabah, is used three times in the story. Verse 20, the prophet that brought him back. Verse 26, the prophet that brought him back. And again here in verse 23, the prophet that brought him back. I think it's the same Hebrew expression exactly in each of these cases. So the prophet that brought him back saddled an ass for him. So I think what we're being told, brothers and sisters, is that the old prophet sent the man of God away on an ass which he provided. And probably because he felt responsible for the whole matter and he wanted his guest to try and at least get home safely to Judah. And so he sent him on his way on an ass of his providing. And verse 24 says, And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. Now, do you know, in the southern half of Palestine in those days, Bethel sits in the bottom half of the land, lions were common. There was a lion in Timnath in Judges 14 verse 5 that attacked Samson. There was a lion in Bethlehem in the 1st of Samuel 17 verse 34 that attacked David. There was a lion in Kabzeel in 2nd Samuel 23 verse 20 that attacked Benaiah. There was a lion that killed a prophet in the 1st of Kings chapter 20 verse 36 near Aphek, all in the southern part of Palestine. Lions were quite common. In fact, it gave rise to a proverb Quite an interesting one, really. If you come to Proverbs chapter 26, it was a famous proverb that the sluggards had adopted as an excuse for why inaction was a good solution to all the problems of life. The sluggards always find good reasons, and this was one of the perfect ones that they gave. And, and the, really, the funny thing about it is there was always such a grain of truth in it that there was possibility, you see. And in Proverbs 26 and verse 13, one of the sayings of the slothful was, there's a lion in the way, a lion in the streets. Oh, I can't go to work today. I can't leave my house. There's a lion out there in the streets. And just because it might be possible was what made that proverb so skillful, you see. A possible excuse for inactivity. There's a lion in the streets. Now, let me show you something interesting, though, about the region near Bethel. If you come to the second of Kings chapter 2, we're told of a particular geographical feature right beside Bethel that perhaps was significant in terms of the destiny of the man of God. The second of Kings, chapter 2 and verses 23 and 24, says this. It says, And as he went up, he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way. So you notice that expression. It's the way to Bethel. Now whether it's the way from Bethel or the way to Bethel, it's one of the roads leading uh, in, the, in the vicinity of Bethel. And in that place, right hard by Bethel, it says, verse 24, at the end of the verse, there came forth two she-bears out of the wood. Now that word wood means a forest. There was a forested area 
near to the city of Bethel. And that forest was big enough and large enough for bears to live in there and roam. But if you come to Jeremiah chapter 5, we find something interesting about lions. Because in Jeremiah chapter 5, and in a passage which our brother Jay drew reference to uh, earlier in the Bible school, it says this in verse 6, Wherefore a lion out of the forest shall slay them. And that word forest in Jeremiah 5 verse 6 is the same word as the word wood. In 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 24, and that wood, that forest, brothers and sisters, is right next door to Bethel. And so I think that lions may well have roamed this very forest that was next to Bethel, you see. So, so, so imagine the thoughts of the man of God as he travelled on this occasion in verse 24. He was gone, he rode upon his, his ass, and, and there, it turned out that there was going to be a, a lion in the way. He's not far from Bethel, brothers and sisters. Don't think he'd gone very far at all. And now out of the forest, where the road goes, there's a sudden movement, a sudden lunge, a sudden leap of a lion from beside the road, and a death blow that killed him instantly, taken by surprise, left lifeless on the road. It was also very sudden. You see, a lion could do that. It comes straight out of the thicket, and before the man could even react, one blow, a lion only needs one blow, brothers and sisters, from their massive paw, and a man is dead instantly by the power of that blow. It was just over in, in, in an instant. And so given the presence of lions in this region, the possibility of the traveller being attacked by one was very real. So it could be seen as an accidental death. Uh, but what followed was so unusual that it could only be construed as miraculous. Because it wasn't just that a lion met him by the way near Bethel. It says that he slew him, and his carcass was cast in the way, and the ass stood by it, and the lion also stood by the carcass. So there were three things here that attested to the hand of God at the scene the untouched carcass, the unmolested ass, and the unmovable lion. No one had ever seen a scene like this before. And all those fell outside the normal course of nature. And what they did is they testified to the world that the man of God did not die by chance. He died by the express and deliberate consequence of divine intervention. There was no other way than to read the story of that scene upon the road than to realize that God's hand must have been in the matter. Strange thing, you know, verse 24, it was as if both animals remained there to guard the carcass. Their natural instincts were both held temporarily in check. The ass didn't flee and the lion didn't kill. There's something very strange about the scene, isn't there, brothers and sisters, that we're bidden to behold? Well, certainly others beheld it, because verse 25 says, And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast by the way, 
and the lions standing by the carcass, and they came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelled. You see, that was the most unusual sight of all. You see, the lion, by the way, verse 25, the lion didn't attack the men either. Can, they, can you imagine these men coming around the corner? Oop, there's a lion right in the middle of the street. But he didn't attack them. He, he stood by the body and he wouldn't move. He wouldn't budge. And by the way, I'm quite sure that they decided they wouldn't go any nearer either. They found some other way to get back to Bethel and they came back to the city and they said, you've never, you never guess what we've just seen on the roadside. There's a lion there beside a body and he won't budge. He didn't attack us. And most amazing of all, there's an ass alongside him that won't budge either. And they came and told it. Now, notice, brothers and sisters, they didn't tell it to the old prophet. Do you see that? It doesn't say they came and told it to the old prophet. It says they came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. So you see, they told the whole city. All Bethel came to hear the story of the lion and the ass and the carcass. And because all the city heard, all the city knew, so did the king, brothers and sisters. Oh yes, Jeroboam would have heard about this. He couldn't hush the matter. It was public news right across the city. The death of the man and the story of his disobedience was now made public. And so here was a challenge for Jeroboam, another opportunity to consider and to repent. Verse 26 says, When the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, It is the man of God. Did you notice that little phrase, the prophet that brought him back? You see what it said again in verse 20? It simply says that, doesn't it? The prophet that brought him back. And again at the end of verse 23, the prophet that brought him back. But now verse 26 says, and when the prophet that brought him back from the way. Now that's an interesting addition, isn't it? He brought him back from what way? He brought him back from the way that God had asked him to walk in. And now the old prophet is described in the context of the wrong he did in urging the man of God to depart from the very way that God had said, you must walk in this way. And given as he did, the old prophet's own acute awareness of the part that he played in this tragedy, when he heard news that there was a dead body just outside Bethel on the road, the man of the old prophet knew immediately who the dead one must be, didn't he? He said, I know who the dead man is. I know now. It's the man of God. And he must have been devastated to hear because he was the one who'd brought him back. He was the one who'd asked the man of God to walk in a way that he never should have walked in. Come have a look at Proverbs chapter 28, brothers and sisters. Proverbs 28 verse 10. One of those pithy little maxims in the book of Proverbs and a tremendous lesson. Just out of that one phrase, the prophet that brought him back from the way. Well, Proverbs 28 verse 10 puts it this way. It says, Whoso causeth the righteous to go astray in an evil way, he shall fall himself into his own pit, but the upright shall have good things in possession. And isn't that exactly what the old prophet had done? He caused a righteous man to go astray and to walk in a way that he never should have walked in. And that way, incidentally, was the way back to Bethel. God said, you cannot go by the way thou camest. And that's the very way that the old prophet urged the man of God to walk in. And he brought him back out of the way that he was walking in and caused him to walk in an evil way. And maybe there's a lesson here, brothers and sisters, for all of us 
in the first of Kings 13 verse 26, how we wish that we might never be described as one who has caused another saint to walk in a way other than God's. We want to make sure that the impact that we have on one another is only for our good and never to our spiritual detriment. The old prophet, I think, would never forget the moment he heard those words. There's a dead man on the way just outside of Bethel. And he said with tears in his eyes, it's the man of God. And he didn't just say it's the man of God, he said it's the man of God who was disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Rodham says, who rebelled against the bidding of the Lord. Green's literal says, who provoked the mouth of the Lord. It's the same phrase, incidentally, as verse 21. For as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord. That's the word here in verse 26. He's been disobedient unto the mouth of the Lord. Oh yes, the old prophet knew who he was. And he says, therefore, the Lord has delivered him unto the lion, which has torn him and slain him, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spake unto him. Now, incidentally, when it says that he's torn him, I think the margin is better. The margin says he's broken him, and that's actually what the Hebrew word means. I don't believe that the lion had torn the body at all, in the sense of rending it to pieces. We know that, don't we? Because verse 28 says, the lion had not eaten the carcass. So the body as a whole hadn't been attacked by the lion. I think it was just that one single blow that probably broke the neck of the man so that he died instantly. He was broken, but not torn in that sense. The body was complete. It had not been devoured in any way by the lion, but for all of that he'd broken him indeed and slain him by the powers that only lions have. But the critical word in verse 26, I think, is Therefore, Yahweh hath delivered him. And there's another principle here, brothers and sisters, and it's axiomatic to God's dealings, and it's known as the law of consequences. See, what we're told here is that the man of God was disobedient to the mouth of God. He suffered divine judgment of the lion, and to whose power he was delivered, he died as a consequence. But that's really a principle that was established all the way back in Genesis, wasn't it? And in the Garden of Eden, God established two principles side by side, which ever after have guided mankind on the journey before God, and they are these. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, the law of free will, but of this particular tree thou shalt not eat, and in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die, the law of consequences. And side by side, God placed two laws in the Garden of Eden as axiomatic with all his dealings with mankind. He grants to men and to women free will, the law of free will. But side by side with that, he demands that the law of consequence also be at play in our lives. And when we're young, brothers and sisters, do you know what we imagine? We imagine the law of free will means free to choose whatever we want to choose, and so it is. And we spend the rest of our lives learning that the law of consequences is so painful and so bitter that suddenly we don't have quite as much freedom as we thought in the law of free will. 
and that despite the fact that we have free will, we must choose wisely because there will be consequences that will follow. And what God says is, I will never, ever take away from a man or a woman the law of free will. They must choose voluntarily to serve me. That's part of God's purpose. It must be free will. But I also say, says God, that you cannot escape the law of consequences. They come together, these two laws. And isn't that really what Galatians says when Paul says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, free to choose, law of free will, that also shall he reap, law of consequences. And we spend our lives learning, finally, the reality of that principle, brothers and sisters, that applies to everything that we do in life. It certainly applied to the man of God on this occasion. The law of free will versus the law of consequences. Do you ever stop to think why it says, why the apostle says in Galatians, be not deceived. Whatsoever a man soweth, that also shall he reap. It's because, brothers and sisters, that we do try, we do believe that we can defeat the principle of the law of consequences. We imagine that we can do things and there will be no consequences. Or we want the law of free will, but we want to escape the law of consequences. God says it's the law of nature. It's the law of harvest. It's inescapable as sowing and reaping follow one another. Don't deceive yourselves. The law of consequences will always play out in our lives. And the man of God had come up against the reality of that law, as we do every day of our lives, brothers and sisters, until finally we realize that our free will ought to be directed only in spiritual ways to the honor of God, and then the consequences might be blessing. And you see how the verse finishes, verse 26. It says, Yahweh's delivered him, therefore Yahweh hath delivered him unto the lion, which hath torn him and slain him, according to, according to the word of Yahweh which he spake unto him. But when he says the word of Yahweh which he spake unto him, I believe that what the old prophet is saying is it's the very word that he spake to the man of God in verses 21 and 22. The word of Yahweh which he spake unto him was the very things that the old prophet set forth but he rightly describes it as the word which Yahweh had spoken to the man of God because the old prophet realized that he was but the instrument of a divine message and not the author of it. And I think that there's an indication here in that last phrase, brothers and sisters, of the mind of the old prophet. He says he's died according to the word of Yahweh which he, God, spake unto him. Not me, I was just the instrument. And now at last we've got a sign that the old prophet has got God back at the center of his mind again. God back at the forefront of his thinking. Well, what would the city make, brothers and sisters, of this astonishing news that the man of God was dead. And what would the king do in response to this evidence of divine judgment? And how would the old prophet behave when this full realization of his own sin would now come so powerfully upon him? Well, that, brothers and sisters, is the subject of our next study.